0: This is Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. You guys, this place. A podcast. Red From Red Hawk Publications.
1: Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. But you need not know that.
2: Greetings from Red Hawk Publications, a division of Catawba Valley Community College. My name is Patty Thompson, and I am the project coordinator for Red Hawk. And with us today is our publisher, Robert Knight. Welcome to Red Pub Pod. And also, we have a very special guest today, um, poet, native of Hickory, Paul Jones. Um, A little bit about Paul before we start speaking with him. Um, Paul's been a retired professor from the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. Forty years he's spent there as the clinical professor of the School of Information and Library Science, as well as with the School of Media and Journalism an illustrious career of published poetry, including many journals, Um, in addition to a chapbook, which won the North Carolina Writers Network Award entitled, What the Welsh and Chinese Have in Common, in addition to his book, Somewhere Wonderful, which was published by Red Hawk Publications um, in the fall of last year. Paul is also nominated for two Pushcart Prizes, as well as two Best of the Web Awards, and as I always say, most importantly with Paul, he's got a manuscript that crashed into the moon's surface. So we'll hear a little bit more about that. But we just want to say, hey there, Paul.
1: Hello. And uh, one small correction. The, the book is called Something Wonderful.
2: Something Wonderful. Not
1: Somewhere Wonderful. But if you're reading it, you are somewhere wonderful.
2: I like the way you See, put I that. See, I told you. I told you she had too much
0: caffeine this morning already. So. <laughs> well, Pro- product names are important. Product yeah, product hard. names, brand identification, all of that good stuff, yeah. But as there we are, publishers. But it words do, are
2: important for poets. It brings me to a very special place when I read it.
0: What I mean. Uh, yes, me too. One of the things that I love about, about this book is how accessible your poetry is. Um, as we have talked about on this show before and as we have all experienced in the classroom, if you've taught uh, poetry to students— Uh, The moment that you mention that you're going into your poetry section of your class, lots of students will groan and they will moan, and I will explain to them that not all poetry will speak to you, but you should at least experience some poetry. You'll find some that uh, is accessible and some that is not, some that you will struggle with and some that you won't. Um, Mr. Jones, uh, what do you do to make your poetry so accessible to any reader who comes to it—that's one of the things that's great about something wonderful—is I identify with something in every poem in this book and every poem that you write.
1: Well, uh, that's a kind of complicated question, but the easy part of the question is uh, the easy answer to part of the question is that uh, I would like people to read and enjoy my poetry. So, if you—it depends on how you envision your audience. So. For me, in some ways, it means uh, thinking about how vocabulary works, thinking about how illusion works, and thinking about how references work. So many of the poems in here, and you've noticed a few that you mentioned, uh, allude to other poetry. They speak back in time in a conversation with earlier poets. But you need not know that to appreciate a lot of the poems. For example... The one about the roommate, Geoffrey, is directly influenced in a kind of homage to Christopher Smart, an early English poet. It also has references within it to Chaucer and others, but one need not know much of that to just
0: have fun with it. Now, right now, you may, you may pause this podcast, get on your phone, and look up Christopher Smart and Jeffrey Chaucer. If you are unsure as to who those people are, we'll wait for you. Okay, we're back. Uh- <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but the idea is that it wants to, a, a good poem to me, a good poem. aspirations are what I have. We'll try to reach at several levels. So you notice a lot of the poems in there are formal poems, but when I read them, almost no one notices, oh, that's a sonnet, that's a trialad, that's a whatever. Uh, poets notice, because the artifice of poetry is to make things seem immediate and real to every listener, everyone out there. The brew of poetry that I try to do has tradition, imagination, as well as personal involvement. And so a lot of poems uh, and poets out there are about themselves and what they do. The I in almost all my poems is inflected through some place in the past and some experience and imagination.
2: It sounds like it's for... When you read the children's books that are really... For adults as well. Yes. So you're writing for all those levels, accessible for the layman, uh, as well as for those like an Adrian Rice who can tear it apart. But he knows exactly what you're doing.
1: It, exactly. I mean, if if I could be a scriptwriter for Rocky and Bullwinkle, I would be a happy person.
0: You may also pause the podcast, go to Google, and look up Rocky and Bullwinkle. If you are unsure as to what that alludes to, we'll wait for you. Ah, welcome back. Uh, <laughs> I think history has a lot, uh, plays a lot. You just mentioned uh, things about the past. History plays a lot in your poetry as well, doesn't it? Not only your personal history, but personal or history that you have experienced in your generation. Am I, am I wrong? Uh,
1: well, I mean, I think you, as you said, as I tried to say, there are three things. <laughs> so, yes, your personal, a poet brings their personal experience and uh, to a poem, sometimes indirectly and inflected which is more what I try to do. So the I'm is uh, Philip Larkin once said uh, about his own poetry, he goes, uh, they're not the whole of me and I'm not the whole of them. Mm-hmm. That the persona that you create, the voice that you speak, is driven by words and imagination and patterns. Uh, now, some people seek to reveal themselves in that, I seek to understand other people in the world in that.
0: That's a nice uh, transition into the question, that Patty, that you wanted to talk about what Mr. Jones has done for a living a lot of his life yeah. and uh, how he is as a craftsman. We talk, We were talking earlier about the right brain and the left brain. brain. And yeah.
2: looking at your CV, because for our listeners, uh, last evening we had a poetry reading, where Paul was the featured guest, and I did some research in his background, and you have an extensive right brain. I mean, you're doing information library, cataloging. Um, You've done some things with the internet. You've got an extensive... Yeah, I know, you created it. Uh, (laughs) um, You've got the left brain going, um, but you also have the ability to have the right brain, and quite frankly that 's kind of a mutation you 're an alien in a good way, in that you can do both paul and and you do you excel at both so i'm i 'm intrigued
1: well it 's easy to be broad if you 're willing to be shallow. I try to be broad <laughs> <laughs> uh, that said, uh, yeah, my background's in computer science I was one of the first uh, undergraduate computer sciences degrees granted from NC State in 1972. Uh, And they've recognized that for me, which is really nice. Um, I've been able to, but my experience hiring and working with people is that uh, this idea of brain division is not very real. Okay. Uh, That people solve problems sometimes with physical engagement, sometimes with imaginative engagement, and sometimes with musical engagement, and sometimes with linguistic engagement. Hmm. The best and most imaginative coders I've had were almost always musicians. Because the work we do.
0: I can understand that. Because music is basically math. Exactly. And math is a more concretized kind of language.
1: But, but even separately from math, the work of uh, programming and, to some degree, the work of poetry is about pattern recognition. Okay. So understanding patterns and understanding languages that help create patterns. The language might be music. It might be coding. It might be English or whatever native language. Understanding pattern recognition and how to manipulate patterns to have some overall effect. We see this in music when you shift from a minor to a major chord. You don't have Most listeners, many listeners, don't see that shift, but they're emotionally and physically affected by hearing that chord shift. Similarly, patterns in language, you'll ha- hear people go, oh, I like the kind of rhyming you do. Like, I really don't know what, in fact, one editor sent <laughs> one, uh, a hinged double sonnet back to me and said I don't know what this form is which means I will never send to him again but uh, but it really is kind of intriguing there must be some name for it yes it's only been used since medieval time. no since uh, Renaissance so uh, but um, he, you don't need to know that to uh, appreciate the effect that's going on so that's true for music Fred Brooks, in uh, his Mythical Man Month book that's a touchstone for programmers, has a whole chapter on coding as the poetry of math. You know, And if you think about music or you see these mathematical patterns play out, if you think about formal poetry, you see this play out. If you think about actually really good free verse poetry that is more than – just an outpouring of emotion, but attracts you somehow by the oral and temporal senses that go on, then that's also what goes on. So the, you don't want to be too highfalutin about it. Right. <laughs> um, but, you know, Bruce Springsteen and the the, the Beastie Boys and Joni Mitchell, you know, right. all those people are pounding on, you know, you can you can hear patterns, you can hear the rhythms going on, you can hear, even if you're just listening to lyrics, you know, how this goes on, how they do modulation, how you don't exactly repeat what was before, but you do an improvisation Mm -hmm. of it all, you know, because now particularly, we're sophisticated enough that things that are too iambic, we get lost in them. So the poets challenge is to not stalk around like Frankenstein in verse, but to be a little more lithe, a little more light-footed.
0: Yeah, you know, what you've basically done here is is, <laughs> is proved to me that we've been indoctrinated to believe that things that are abstract were were chaotic, but you're telling me now that actually there's patterns in abstraction the the arts which we've always thought as being this kind of subjective thing is more objective than we have been led to believe
1: well we we love innovation but we also love tradition so the the two tensions of the creative and this is true in all these is to be new at one level and unique but the other level if you're so new and so unique, no one can understand what the hell is going on. On the other hand, you want to be grounded in something that is familiar. But if it's too familiar, it's trite, it's boring, it's overdone. So you have to kind of meet these middle grounds of how do you reach backward and pull things forward. And it's always been the challenge of uh, going back to musicians again. Mm-hmm. Uh, a musician your producer uh, and label would really like you to do the same song as the last hit. And if you want to hear a complaint from any songwriter, it uh, Ray Davies famously for Waterloo station, Waterloo station is a great song. Uh, No one including Davies is exactly sure what it's about, but the effect is very, very strong. And his label just went, do us an album of those songs. Guys, are you kidding me? <laughs> you
2: know, this brings a wonderful opportunity. If you don't mind, Paul, would you read us one of your poems? And bearing in mind what you just taught us, um, incorporating new based on something maybe more traditional—that would be kind of fun.
1: Well, let's let's do uh, a couple that. Um might be fun, one that everybody will recognize that is really an homage and a parody and just kind of fun. Um, The red vinegar sauce. So much depends upon the red vinegar sauce dribbled on pulled pork beside the white coleslaw. And that's... uh, A North Carolina take on William Carlos Williams' so much depends on the red wheelbarrow. And it's there to be light, to be fun, and to take it to the religion of North Carolina, which is Lexington-style barbecue.
0: You may take time to Google William (laughs) Carlos Williams, the red wheelbarrow, and we will have an entire podcast show about that poem. Uh, At a later date, that could be a Uh, (laughs) t-shirt. A t-shirt sold at the Lexington Barbecue Festival for those folks who are
2: interested. That's that is fun. Thank you.
1: So, so let's do another one here. That uh, the saint of trees. What is the proper sacrifice to please our Lord, the saint of trees? I ask the ferns for their advice. What is the proper sacrifice? Lie here and dream of paradise, sink into the soul like leaves. That is the proper sacrifice to please our Lord, the saint of trees. And so that's a promisal form called a triolet. But you don't need to know any of that. You don't need to know that this is what the troubadours did. Hoping to woo someone describing often describing landscape or describing love in the morning or describing other things, but to create a character, the scene of trees, to reuse this patterning. Mm-hmm. This is a heavy, heavily patterned a very short poem, but with very heavy pattern restric- restrictions. And you can break those restrictions, of course, but this one is pretty, pretty damn close.
0: I noticed that it's kind of like a call and respond because mm-hmm. the first, uh, the first verse is, you know, like a call. And then the, apparently the saint of trees is talking to the reader in the second. Or the ferns. Yeah. Or the ferns are yeah. talking mm-hmm. in the second verse. Yes, the ferns.
1: Yeah, I, I used that. But that's not required.
0: Okay. What
1: is required is uh, the pattern of the lines. Okay. So, that, uh, just for fun, uh, the first line it, in the first verse is also the last line in the first verse. And then uh, the second line is the last of that verse. Is the second as the last line of the poem? And then the rhyme pattern is A B a a uh, a b a b so I mean, it's a lot to say about trilates, but you know, I like li- reading poems, and i've I have to say, I must have written fifty horrible versions before I hit on one that did what what this poem does mm-hmm. that set, makes a character that makes a conversation, that makes a response, as you noticed. Uh, the Provincel guys don't do that, but I just kind of got stuck. I went, well, you asked the ferns, what the hell do they say?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so is that is that a reflection of taking what is already an established pattern and adding your spin on it to then yeah. make it yours to add to that?
1: Yeah, and also one of the things that I learned in trying to translate Welsh poetry is uh, counter patterns in there that disturb it so that it's not... Quite so regular. So you'll hear some internal rhyme in there, please. For example, and mm-hmm. this is in the middle of the line, where you don't expect the rhyme to be, and therefore it's a little less boring. You know, you want to have a, a counter, to, just like good music. If it, exactly. If it's too much, if the chord progression is too predictable, there's and no hook ever shows up you're not going to have a hit. (laughs) You know, people, and why don't you have hits? Because people, like, don't get it. So uh, you want, hopefully, and what pleases me, is to know that there's a pattern there, to interfere with that pattern a little bit. And that helps heighten an emotionality to it. You know, when it's less predictable uh, then. There's a little emotional attachment to it, you know. It lets you be able to talk. Your idea in a poem, I think, or in any piece of writing, is to have other people read it and possibly enjoy it, or at least follow the instructions if you and uh, you'd like it to be an enjoyable experience and hopefully slightly memorable.
0: And I think that I think uh, that it that it that it interrupts without distracting. That's the idea. Without putting you off. And, and, and I'm reminded of tons of music that's like that. That, uh, You know, the first time I ever put on the album um, Big Science by uh, Laurie Anderson oh, back right. in 1980, I'm hearing these noises and these, these notes that I'm used to because I recognize the A chords and the B chords and the G chords, but the way she put it together was uh, interrupting but still enjoyable. And you know, forty years later, I still put on that record, and I'm just enthralled yeah, she's at what this a, woman has been able to do with music.
1: Yeah, she's a very good example of an innovator who also whoops pulls the tradition towards you, and uh, as opposed to somebody who's like remaking the same hit, she would know uh, Anderson or even Patti Smith wouldn't do that. It, yep. You know, to talk about two really different creatives—one really rough and one really. Honed and inclusive and borrowing from people, uh, influences like John Cage's uh, deals are house music that actually records ambient music around uh, ambient sounds and combines that into a musical experience.
0: Yeah, like Brian Eno has done and Daniel Lanois and the the ambient stuff from the 70s and 80s.
1: But also uh, poets do this Mm -hmm. often. So uh, yesterday was the 100th anniversary of Philip Larkin's poems. Almost many, if not all of his poems, allude to a previous poem in English somehow. But you need not know that. You know, he has one called Sad Steps. Uh, which is moderately famous. It's a, it, the title it comes out of Sydney, you know, oh, with O oh, oh Sad Steps, O oh Moon, Thou Climbest the Stars. And it's about, in Sydney's case, it's about untrue love. You know, it's a little sonnet about untrue love. In Larkin's case, it's about age. His starts out groping back to bed after taking a piss. I look at the moon, and am amazed at something about its its cleanliness. And he rhymes those rhymes, but then as he gets down, it's about looking out at the pre-dawn light and about death. It's the opposite of an abode, you know. And he has a poem called Abode too that goes, "I work all day and get half drunk at night." Is the first lines of that, but it ends with. The telephone squatting to ring in every rented room, you know that that image of that, and uh, but he's he's talking back and forth. But you need not know that to do it. You know his most famous poem, which I probably won't do here because it's has more words that need to be bleeped, But um, is called "This Be the Verse." This be the verse is probably the poem that is known in every bar in England, but it's an allusion, that one line, to Robert Louis Stevenson, who has a poem written, here is the hunter home from the wood, here is the sailor home from the sea, and it ends, and this be the verse that be writ on my grave. And Larkin only does, this be the verse, and then he has this thing about how your parents screw you up, etc., and <laughs> don't have any kids yourself. Uh, and... Oddly, it will probably be the verse that is written imaginatively in the grave of people. (laughs) Because when you ask someone, do you know a Philip Larkin poem? Any, at any bar in England, three-quarters of the
2: drunks will know that poem. <laughs> <laughs> and I thank you for reading that last night, by
0: the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was uh, you, you can go to poetry.org and look that poem up, and uh, you will enjoy it. Um, what kind of a poem is I Do This, I Do That on page 45?
1: Okay, so uh, that's a prose poem uh, done this way. But when I do prose poems, I do other things in them. So the idea here is to use uh, simple declarative sentences largely, uh, and uh, to create an idea of this character. It's also uh, so. Let me step out a minute and say, sometimes I want to make fun of other poets in poems. So one of the uh, one of the terms that I think Tom Lux who I studied with, is a wonderful and very funny poet uh, who died about two years ago, used to say, all these poets, they're writing about themselves. All their poems are, I do this, I do that poems. And so I went, I'll just write a poem that I do this, I do that. But I tried to create a particular character with a kind of ennui. It helped that COVID had set and all my friends were writing COVID poems and I went, you know, I, I think I can imagine a person in this position and uh, get there.
0: Perform that one. I will.
1: (laughs) I do this. I do that. I stay in bed too long most days. I boil water when half awake. Then I forget to add coffee. I'm out of tea. I feel the cold floor on my bare feet. I could put on socks or turn up the heat. I do nothing much. I worry about animals. Here and in Africa and the last cloud leopard. I want to write a check to make their lives better. I'm out of stamps. I want to call a friend who is still in Vietnam. But it's noon here at midnight there. I call anyway, as if he could answer.
0: Now, this poem, folks, when you when you buy the book at redhawkpublications.com, it's only fifteen dollars, and it's worth every penny. Get that plug in there. When, well, I need to make help this man buy groceries, but it's on page forty five now. Th- even though it was read like it might have been individual lines stacked up on top of one another and get flow down the page, it is not. It is a paragraph that almost reads like or presents like prose. Is there a reason behind that?
1: Well, uh, there are a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's exactly 101 words. Uh, so. Now i got to count it. <laughs> uh, uh, so there, uh, there's a... A little place online that has 101 word poems or stories, and I went. The nice thing about this, if I get this into this voice, and you know, if I can figure out how to do it right, and suddenly the voice takes possession of you. You know, it, this is the creative part that like creatives don't understand, but we're attracted to. You know, when you hear, uh, it's not unusual for a novelist to say, you know, my character just took off and they said what they wanted to say. And this sort of was the case here. Uh, but the character also had to only do it within the bounds of 101 words. <clears throat> um, but it, So it's, it's either flash fiction, it's a flash monologue, or it's a prose poem. And uh, there's a lot of argument about what fits where within that. But this one and uh, there's one that is done like a Facebook status posted by Betty <laughs> uh, that's in this same genre doesn't worry about lineation, uh, is more concerned about the sentence and the progression uh, within the sentence and the voice speaking.
0: What about the ambiguity of the last line as if he could answer?
1: Yeah, so uh, this is... Uh, the character to me is... But semi-depressed and probably with PTSD and who has a part of the path that you don't you know that something's going on as you go through with this guy but until you get to the Vietnam part you don't realize that and people with PTSD or people with stress systems they live in their in this crucial moment and a lot of us do that there's a crucial moment that is
0: with us, no matter what we Yeah, do. usually having to do with our parents.
1: Uh, yeah, well, the, <laughs> that, yeah, that would be uh, Freudian and Adlerian, Ed- but yeah, I mean, uh, certainly, uh, speaking back to Philip Larkin, uh, who had his own parent problems or mommy issues, for men who've been in Vietnam and were very, uh, because once you face death together with someone else, there's a bond there that no one else can really understand truly. And uh, I wanted, because, uh, as we say at my house, Pulse Tribe, we're often people that we hire that are people that, well, you would recognize the diagnosis. Like, we're we're scattered until we're not, and then it's like, boom, we're right on it. We're obsessive. We over-detail what we talk about. Uh, We love, you know... Anything like one star – well, someone will focus on like one Star Wars character for years. um, But that designing empathy is a project, cognitive and otherwise, that people that are good at empathy uh, don't understand the work of it. So those Mm -hmm. of us that work on it, like poetry to me in a way is to work at that – one of the emotional tools of – poetry is to work at that kind of empathy for me. So looking out, a lot of po- poets prefer to look in and to look at their direct experience. To me, the, my project is to look out with, and try to generate and understand the kind of empathy that is not immediate to me and to others in my place. That uh, And for people who have that, it, that seems like how can you? How can that be a project but those of us who don't have it well that don't have it under control or that just either weren't born with it or don't care or don't give a damn <laughs> it's hard to tell the difference um, is to try to get into the uh, a touch with uh, that world of understanding where other people are And so since I haven't had exactly that experience, having not been a Vietnam veteran, but quite a a different play in that time and period, I want to know those men in a way. And this was a poem into which I could try to touch the men that I knew that had that kind of experience. Just like Betty, who we talked about, I wanted to understand what it was like in my head, to be a middle-aged divorcee with adult children who is finding out something about who she is for herself.
0: See, and that's one of the marvelous things. This, This prose poem proves that poetry is always worth revisiting. And since most poetry is short... You can read those things over and over again. The first time you read this poem, I do this, I do that, you think, I, have, I want to call a friend who is still in Vietnam. And your internal movie theater in your head, you know, maybe pictures a friend that lives in Vietnam. It's only when you get to the last line that you can kind of get flummoxed and you think, as if he could, as if he could. And then you go back, revisit the poem, a guy, a friend who is still in Vietnam He's still in Vietnam because that's where he died. That's right. where he is buried, or that's where he disappeared. Or, you know, we might not even know where he is. That's the last time we saw him. And then it's noon here and midnight there. I'll call anyway as if he could answer. That's a double dip of fantastic emotion given to you by one poem. Thank you. And it can be a triple dip or a quadruple. I mean, because you, you, you sew these things into these poems that bear going back and going over them again. I tell my students all the time with Emily Dickinson, don't just read an Emily Dickinson poem once, read it 10 times, Mm -hmm. because you're going to find 10 different things that are going to just not only flummox you, but they're going to enlighten you. And music's the same way. Every time you drop that tone arm on that favorite song it gives you something else. Mm-hmm. Your poetry is the same way, and that's why well, I brought thank that you so poem much. up, is because this is like one of my favorites in the book. Well, thank you. Because of that ability yeah, to do a, that.
1: It's 101 words.
0: 101 words. <laughs> and he will count it.
2: <laughs>
1: Not to say. So this is this is to speak back to Patty's question about right brain and left brain. This one has things that satisfy the urge to count and... Mm-hmm. They try to satisfy the urge to explore emotion and connect with other people.
2: No one gets out of this room until you answer me this question. (laughs) I'm so (laughs) fixated on the manuscript of poems that crashed on the moon's surface. A, how did that happen, and which poems are (laughs) they?
1: Okay, so uh, I, I have to figure out how to make this a short story because it could be quite long. Uh, As you know, I've worked in libraries and archives and the ideas of digital archives and of free information uh, far since the 80s. So as a copy left kind of person, as uh, trying to create masses of public domain and other accessible documents and to keep them digitally accessible to all people everywhere. So this is the background of what that Biblio is, and the project that I, I did originally is Sunsite. A lot of it's had to do with open source and free software in which people voluntarily collaborate to make products that are useful to all mankind. I know a bunch of different people doing something, and I was connected to a guy named Nova Spivak. Nova's name was actually familiar to me because his mother is a poet named Catherine Spivak. And his uh, grandfather was uh, the guy who invented modern management, Peter Drucker. Uh, So Nova had created some uh, businesses that had made him some money on the Internet, and he had created a business called Arc Mission, which is an archive mission. The idea is to try to collect as much human knowledge as you can in a preserved form and place it at different places where it could be discovered, so in the bottom of an Austrian salt mine. In the his first outing was to engrave the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy into thin quartz sheets and put them in the glove compartment of a Tesla that <laughs> SpaceX sent. The one that's playing Rocket Man by Elton John eternally, or at least until the battery runs out, it it also has, Nova had managed to get um, Elon Musk to let him place this payload of quartz and very thin sheets of quartz engraved of Foundation trilogy. So he said, "I've got this even better plan." So he called me up and said, "You know, our first friend says we need to talk because I, I've got this idea, but like, I don't know how to like what to put in it, and I've got the technology behind it. Technology is micro thin nickel plates because nickel is non reactive uh, that you can put several hundred, if not more, in the size of what a CD, if people remember those." Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you made the top layer one that people would know it was something to create something like a Rosetta Stone, but let's do several million pages, Paul. I just need to know how to get all of Wikipedia, how to get all of the stuff at BrewsterKalesArchive.org, how to get... uh, other things and so we talked for a long time about what to have there and how to get things done and how to be inclusive uh, because at first he went, I've got all these things I went, well they're all in English and that's not a good long bet, think about the Rosetta Stone the more, it's three languages made it possible to crack whereas things in other languages were lost when the people were lost, even though the civilization might have been quite high so, the more uh, languages we can get. So, there are several projects you want to look at. And so, I pointed him at the Rosetta Project that the Long Now Foundation does. I pointed him at the UN uh, Declaration of Human Rights, which is in every language of every UN member, every official language. So, that's really very good. Um, and then, as we talked, we also talked about children's books, that how children used to read with um, that. And he said... Well, um, you know this guy. That I, my, I'm going to put my mother's poems up there, and this guy that like used to babysit for me, uh, who was her teacher, Robert Lowell. I was <laughs> <laughs> oh, just
0: Robert Lowell. <laughs> I'm going to
1: so and and something that may possibly be questionable for child protective services that Robert Lowell was Nova's babysitter. <laughs> Lowell was well. Poets are great poets, but not necessarily consistently great people, uh, See Philip Larkin. But um, so he said, you know, like, send me a manuscript and we'll put how much ever you have on there. So I hadn't met you guys, so I didn't have a really good manuscript yet. I went, how the hell are you going to do this? Who's going to do it? He said, I've got these Israeli guys that are trying to do the SpaceX, I mean, the X challenge you know, which the idea was you know, who could land something on the moon who could bounce three times and whatever. And they were young Israeli engineers who had a very interesting and slightly risky way of doing this with less fuel, with less rocket. Uh, and they had this lander. And he said, I think I found the way to raise money for this. I have to put a whole bunch of things on from Israeli school children. And I go, well, this is perfect. I mean, what the hell? Because they were also multilingual. Uh and mm-hmm. sure enough, you got this we, we have this package of micro thin nickel that is engaged. it is you can see it with your eye first and then it instructs you to step down and look with you. So you know something's there and then with microscopes you can get down further and further and uh there's some compression. Because there's also some audio and he said like what else am I going to do I, went, well, I don't know there's some non uh, verbal cultures I think I would just like ask them what, how they would like to be represented in something like this so we had some uh, somehow he has some compressed video on there uh, but it's all zeros and ones you know Binary. <laughs> but there are instructions on how to do this but sure enough uh, NOVA was there when the rocket went off and it, uh, it took a while because it's, it goes around the Earth a few times to pick up speed and then it slingshots out to the moon and picks up, picked up by the moon's gravity and slings around that. Everything was going great. Like it made it. Up. There's so many ways you could go wrong. It was encircling the moon. It was really great. And the Israelis were like ready to land it and they went, We'll do this in person because it's like too hard for the computer. BAM! It fell from four miles directly into the moon. But our, and shattered into God knows how many millions of pieces. But the material engineers on the other side said, that that had worked on it for, for Nova said, well, you know, there's no atmosphere, so like it probably wouldn't have overheated when it fell. The gravitational force will be great. That, that kind of fall so it could have shattered but if it landed in a bunch of dust I mean who knows uh, um, so it's either there this manuscript along with Lowell and Kathleen Spivak and all of uh, Wikipedia in every known language and uh, all of the archives from archive.org and God knows what else that, oh, I, I'm not supposed to tell about because we don't know how copyright works on the moon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a Schrodinger's manuscript on the moon anyway. Exactly. It's, 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 it's neither there nor not there.
1: We, well, we have no idea. Have I no mean, idea, you know, yeah. it could be threaded like Egyptian papyri or it could be a hole.
0: <laughs> yeah, so it's like is the cat alive, or is it dead or does it, it even doesn't exist?
1: So. Well we know it it, we, it it actually did exist. We actually saw it go on the, on the rocket. Or I okay. didn't see it but I saw the video of it going on the rocket. But,
0: okay. With a, the with a little bit of time we've got left Patty you wanted to talk about some of Paul's upcoming appearances. And you do have a few that are coming up and we've been in touch with
2: Ash County for example. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing with the on the same page literary festival in West Jefferson, September thirteenth. So 17th. I,
1: I have uh, three things that they're asking me to do: two two readings, one at the in West Jefferson at the Ashe County uh, Public Library, and one at a great little place, the Old Orchard General Store in Lansing, North Carolina, which is known best for the home of Molly Chomper's Cider and Pie on the Mountain, which is a pizza place, and uh, a beautiful part of the Virginia Creeper Trail up there. And uh, they have a brand new bookstore there at the Old Orchard General Store that sells Old Orchard is a blueberry farm largely outside of a few miles away. And so lots of blueberry products. Lots of uh, beer and wine that might, in fact, that lots of gifts and a lot of books that have to do with Western North Carolina, cool. uh, particularly the Ash County, Boone, Watauga County area, because that's where they're near. And then I'll also be doing a panel about publishing, which I think landing on the moon might come up, yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> oh, it always does, uh, with uh, Ed Southern, who runs the North Carolina Writers Network, Jamie Southern, his wife, who runs Bookmarks in uh, Winston-Salem, and Georgianne Eubanks, I think, uh, who's done a number of books about touring North Carolina, uh, particularly most recently about Saving the Wild South, about plants, and literary trails of North Carolina And uh, Judy Goldman from Charlotte, who has a new memoir out as well as a couple of novels. So we'll talk about publishing, and I get to talk about Red
0: Hawk somewhat. Please do. (laughs) Please direct everybody to redhawkpublications.com.
2: And we always encourage people as you listen to this, please make sure that you like Share, subscribe to cure all the world's ills. I think that's about it, guys. Um, I, we want to thank you very much for being our guest today well, and for being so yeah,
0: this respectful. has been terrific. This,
2: yeah, this has been helpful.
1: Thank you. Well, you know, I love poetry and I read poetry, <laughs> and uh, those are two things I think that are required. Uh, that to read poetry across time and of your interest and to have those places to be in conversation with and in fellowship with across time and across cultures is a great gift and also a lot of damn fun.
0: And also a a great gift is to be able to uh, meet this man in person and see him read, see him perform his marvelous works. He is indefatigable when it comes to touring and reading, so... If he appears nearby, please, please go out and see him. If uh, you are up to a nice road trip, get in the car and go to you know Ashe County or go down to what'd you say, Winston Salem, or where so was the, the, the bookstore?
1: Uh, the bookstore is in Lansing, North Carolina, in Ashe County. But uh, I'll also be uh, doing a reading event in Hillsborough, North Carolina, on September ten with Sally Green who's just uh, done a book with the University of Mississippi Press of Elizabeth Spencer's Edwards Stories uh, and is also a county commissioner in Orange County among other great attributes uh, then on September 11 at Scubernon Books in Greensboro Sunday afternoon I'll be doing a reading there with Pat Revere Seal, who um, has a new book out from Main Street Rag, and Katie Kathleen uh, Kehoe, who is uh, a poet and, incidentally, a librarian living in Greensboro.
0: I see, folks, there is art all around you, and it's just within a short drive. And again, going to see this guy and listen to him, Paul Jones, thank you so much for coming to see us today. And... uh, I think that's about it. And we'd like to thank our engineer for today, Bob Richard Eller director and grand poobah of Red Pod Publications. He's the boss man. <laughs> so thank you for tuning in to Red Pub Pod. Thank you. Red Pub Pod. Red Pud Pod.
1: Pub Pod. <laughs> Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. You got it. It's close. It's a little bit of a tongue twister.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everyone. Thanks, everybody.
1: <laughs> thank you.
2: Tuned into Red Pub Pod.
1: Red Pub Pod, Pod. Red Pub Pod. Red Pub Pod. A podcast Red Pub Pod. from
2: Red Hog Publications. It's a little bit of a tongue twister. <laughs> <laughs>